Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 128 with Jeff Cavanaugh. Jeff has a world of experience and wisdom that he shared in spades. So you're going to walk away with one, the powerful career distinguisher of leaning forward with critical thinking, professionalism, and living done-done work. Two, the pyramid principle for communicating with impact. And three, some concrete steps to level up in your field. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep128. And while you're over at awesomeatyourjob.com, I'd recommend you check out some of our best resources, including the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course with great tools for slashing waste out of your work week and the Gold Nugget email list, which summarizes the actionable wisdom of our guests in an email you can read in under two minutes each morning. There's a new episode. So check those out. But for now, here's Jeff's story. Jeff Cavanaugh is a senior partner at Infosys, one of the world's largest consulting firms with over $10 billion a year in revenue and a market cap in the 11 figures. He also serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Texas at Dallas and writes at jeffcavanaugh.net. Here's Jeff. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I'm so curious to know, first and foremost, so you're a senior partner at Infosys, which is about a $10 billion annual revenue company. So big time responsibilities and impressive stuff happening. So I'm so curious, what is it within you that draws you to spend, I don't know if you call it your free time, but to invest a good piece of your life into doing sort of the teaching stuff? Well, I do think that at some point we all need to pay it forward. And over the years, I've had the honor and privilege of being in consulting, learning a lot, serving clients. And I think that to be able to provide some of that back to people going through college and hopefully some practical uh, nuggets here and there, I think that's that's a good thing. And I think you can call it your firm building or extracurricular. The other thing is the opportunity came up. I was helping the University of Texas. They had asked me to give them some ideas on making their curriculum more relevant for critical thinking and creative thinking and some of the things that their board was telling them they needed. And they asked me if I could design a class and then go teach one. No, I didn't really have the time, but it was something that made a lot of sense. And the good part about it is there's a boomerang effect or it's actually helped out our consulting practice. Obviously, it's another way of letting the student population know about our firm. So good source of recruits. It's also a way to develop or further nurture that relationship with a leading institution, which is great because we've already shared a lot of research and it's helped us. And it's also helped us take a good hard look at our own curriculum, how we're training consultants and further refine it. Nothing like having to crystallize it for someone else's use or that it feeds back into your own. So it's been a win-win situation, but you're right though. I very much have to um, tamp it down as far as the time because there've been several requests about more classes and and a lot more commitment, but for the foreseeable future, just a little bit of support on the sides about all I can handle. Understood. Okay. Well, that's good stuff. And so recently I was checking out your blog and I was quite intrigued by you put together or directed a study which had a pretty significant number of folks surveyed. And so you were looking at business school students and then versus the recruiters 
perceptions on some, you know, key competencies in terms of what's important and what do people have? And so could you share some of the key insights that emerged from that study? Sure. Well, first of all, you might ask, why did I do it? And I think a unique position in addition to the normal industry role that I have at the firm, they'd asked me about a year ago, although I'd done a lot with campus recruiting to actually look after it for all of North America. All right. Because we just needed to clean up a few things and I had some suggestions and they said, well, would you just take this on? I said, sure. And so we recruited places like, well, University of Texas, UCLA, USC, you know, a lot of the tier one schools, elite schools. And as we recruited from those schools, well, we talked to the career counselors, the counseling centers, the university career centers. And it was interesting to get their viewpoints on what they thought was important and what they were stressing. And of course, talking to lots of students, you get that perspective. And between ourselves as well as other employers out there, we know what we think we need. We think we know what we need for students to be successful. And I just thought I was seeing some gaps between what we all were prioritizing. And I think, again, it's a fairly unique perspective seeing all three of those simultaneously. And like any good consultant, I wanted to make it fact-based and just to see if this played out beyond anecdotal evidence. And it might be something interesting. So full Qualtrics survey, it was email-based, 500 people in career centers, universities, or other professor influencers, and corporate recruiters and students, you know, 3,000. And some interesting things came out of it. You know, in some cases, they all prioritized. By the way, we used several questions, things like, how well do you think that your college has prepared you to excel in the world? And then we pulled it back a little bit, say, you know, of these eight career readiness competencies, things like critical thinking, creative thinking, leadership, professionalism, and work ethic, and, and on and on, IT awareness, which ones do you think are most important? Which ones do you think people have the most proficiency? In other words, they're, they're good at. And then also some questions about how concerned people were about the effect, the long-term and potentially adverse career impacts of artificial intelligence and automation. We hear a lot. And again, these business school graduates have looked at decades of positive feedback or positive results on uh, salary and long-term career potential. But will that hold going forward? Is the MBA still the golden ticket? Interesting, right? In a world of digital transformation and artificial intelligence and automating away lots of white collars, those blue collar jobs. So that's what we did. Some of the things that were very interesting that came out of it. One is across the board, how critical thinking emerged. And people might think, well, what's that? You know, it's basically analytical reasoning and the ability to put together arguments and judgments, not arguments as in a confrontational way, but arguments as in a position and do it in a way that's fact-based and tell a good story. Because that's the reason I got involved with UT in the first place was that some great quantitative skills coming out of college, but the ability to tell a story and to tell it in a way that people were engaged, you know, multiple senses, not just drowning people in data and quantitative formulas. And so critical thinking emerged as very strong, and yet the proficiency wasn't there as much. You know, it was an area that seemed to emerge that even though people give it lip service, like some people might teach the case method, and they're just not as much attention given to it, at least the perception um, of proficiency. So you're saying that the students did not perceive themselves to be so great at it? Well, they had, a, I think, an optimism bias okay. uh, across the board, a little bit higher. And again, they're going to business school and they're getting a lot of positive feedback among their population. And actually, the career center folks were the ones probably the most positive because, you know, they're partly in the counseling business and they're partly in the cheerleading business because they're trying to 
definitely get people excited and promote the students. I think the recruiters were the ones, or the, the corporate HR folks that said, you know, we just don't see these things as much. There's still something missing or that we have to help people, uh, new hires gain when we hire them. The other thing is interesting is leadership came out as, of course, it's important. We all think you know, leadership is good. The recruiters, though, rated it lower in priority than all the students. And I think it's interesting because as a consulting firm, and I think speaking on behalf of employers, leadership, especially coming out of school, is something that comes from your competency. Get good at your darn job and be effective and make an impact and build. We all can't go run the company a year out of school. You know, people get excited. You do those cases and you're in school and you come out and you expect that you get to skip steps. You know, somehow you've got that golden ticket. And I think the reality is you can run through those steps, but you really can't skip them. And so I think that leadership perception gap also emerged somewhat. And I think other than that, there really wasn't a clear-cut opinion. It's kind of bifurcated on the impact of artificial intelligence and automation. There's some people very concerned about it, some people that weren't. And I attribute that as much to people who just aren't. This is a bit of an angst, but I think people think it's out there in the distance. And they love Siri and Cortana and Google Assistant and Alexa so much that they think, how can it be bad, right? Because it's helping me in my day-to-day life. So I think there's still... That needs to be peeled back a little bit more before we can have too much inclusive evidence, at least for people coming out of school. Okay, so to recap, you said that the students thought they were better at the things than the recruiters thought that the students were. Mm -hmm. The students overestimated their own competence. And you said that the critical thinking skill in particular was one that the recruiters were disappointed in seeing that this is very important to them, but they're not seeing a high level of competence. I wouldn't use the word disappointed. Again, okay. overall, I think it was positive. It's just there's room for improvement. Again, when you go from a slightly scale of 1 to 10, and you're talking about from 6 to 8 or 7 to 9, it's not like 2 and 9, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to emphasize that. It's generally speaking, it wasn't hugely off. I think the biggest thing, though, were the skills. For example, the recruiters emphasized professionalism and work ethic. Again, not that glamorous. Students, it was nowhere on the chart, but employers absolutely mentioned, I think is right up with critical thinking, as most important. I hate to say showing up for work, but beyond that, it's just that work ethic. Again, not very glamorous, but how do you show work ethic? Well, maybe we have a phrase called done-done or client-ready. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone gives you something, but yet you still have to proof it just because you know it wasn't really completely done. Or if, if there's a little more fact-checking, or just those little things. And I believe that's the element that the employers are wanting, that extra bit of work ethic and professionalism. And I think that actually was the biggest gap that came out of it. Okay, and that's a great distinction there. So when we're talking about professionalism, it's not so much, you know, tuck it in your shirt, but it's like going the extra mile associated with ensuring that a deliverable, that's a fun phrase, is done, Mm -hmm. done. Not just, okay, technically you have complied with my request, but yes, this is rare and to go. Also, imagine this metaphorically leaning forward, being proactive, making sure and confirming that feedback, that did you get what you needed? Did you receive the document? Could you open it? Were you able to use it? Was there something? There's a lot of feedback questions you can ask when you provide a result, you deliver a result, instead of saying, well, if you have questions, you get back with me. Or I'm sure that, well, I created the document, but you can format it to print. Who prints anyway? There's a lot of little things. And there are three types of people in life, right? They're the people that make your life easier, the ones that don't really affect it too much, and the ones where it actually cause you more work. 
And that creeps into a crazy world where we all have more than we can do. Somehow the email gods are just stuffing those things at us every day more than we can open or act on. And the organization isn't even as firm or as fixed as before. You know, lots of ambiguity. So you don't want that in those people you're hiring coming out of school. What's ironic is some of these skills they're the best at. Talk about digital natives. It's just, I think it's a mix of old and new, whether you call it the work ethic, whether you call it critical thinking and the ability to do good old-fashioned logic and analytical reasoning. In fact, that course I developed for UT made sure that some of the best of the uh, philosophy comes in, you know, logos, pathos, ethos, kinds of things, because it helps you create sound reasoning, which doesn't matter how much data you can pull off a Google search or other searches, can you organize it in a way? Can you apply the pyramid principle? Can you contrast between deductive and inductive logic? Can you think deductively but communicate inductively? All these are things which open that pipe of comprehension between you and your recipient so they can take it in. And that's really what the really good consultants or strategists or senior people can do. They can convey information in just a few minutes and maybe just a few pages in a way that someone can process it and do a lot with it. I think that's a hallmark of a good professional is the ability to not just communicate, but to synthesize with it and communicate with impact. Oh, yes, that's so good. And so now you dropped a nice number of tools there from, you know, the ancient to the pyramid principle and, and more. So could you maybe give us just sort of a couple quick tips in terms of, hey, I see a shortcoming here frequently when it comes to putting together a story or forming a nice argument. I think the first one is deductive logic, which comes from the scientific method. It's the way engineers think, a lot of us think, where you want to build your case. And then at the end, you provide your conclusion. If you do a good job, the whole chain works and it's solid. The problem is the real world's messy. So when you're communicating, even if it's a report, the recipient may not get past page two or three. If it's a meeting, people might be called away. The hour and a half you had to present, maybe only 10 minutes. A lot of reasons why, and you say it's not fair. That's true. Life's not fair. Why don't you, though, design for that real world? So create your business case. Defend all your arguments and, and whatever it is that you're doing, assuming it's some kind of report. Most of us, that's what we do these days. You know, We're not making widgets as much. Or even if you are making widgets, there's a quality report. There's the demand plan. There's the, you know, it's a procurement. So it's all around these things. Communicate it instead of in a linear way like that. Pull it forward. State your conclusion at the beginning. Yes. Support it with between three and five. I know some folks like to limit it to three. Between three and five supporting arguments that are mutually exclusive, completely exhaustive. So they're similar. And then you just build a tree. It's a pyramid of logic that begins with a situation and something that complicates it or it's a challenge. So that context has a challenge and then you have an overarching question. And questions are fantastic because they invite a response and then you arrange your pyramids of logic beneath it. I believe if people just do that, it's amazing how much smarter they sound and more effective they are because they've just arranged their logic. They've arranged their thinking, they've structured it. So that's the first thing I would say to most people who are otherwise very good at their work, they work hard, competent, but maybe they seem to hit a wall especially when dealing with managers or senior managers, you know, people well above them. 
Oh, this was fun. It's to bring you back to the case interview days as an aspiring baby. Well, I was baby. about to lead into that as well, if you don't mind, just for a second, because I know a lot of the people that listen to this might be beyond their employment interviews. I think the case interview is a very interesting and important example of bringing this to life, where we use it and many firms use it because not because it's just some secret cultural ritual. It actually is a microcosm of what most of us are asked to do in a day. You're asked to go from a standing start to a report in about 40 minutes and how it helps you handle and measure how you handle stress. It helps you deal with ambiguity, not having enough information to be able to estimate. So if someone tells you something, you can say, well, I assume it's X, I assume it's Y, and you build it into your story. You take notes. We have these mental models or governing frameworks that you use that can arrange you know, something simple as a financial statement or maybe it's a hierarchy of some kind. It's just a way of making sense of these complex, ambiguous situations. And I think the case interview is applicable to almost any professional. And I can tell you the first time I went through one, I had not gone to one of those colleges that prepared you adequately for it. And I hit a mental wall. It was a painful thing. And I didn't know how to get around that wall. And of course, once you learn how to break down your thinking, deconstruct it, then it becomes simply a method and you work through it. I've been on both sides of that situation, though, where you just know you're not doing something right, where there's this complex thing, but you're not equipped for it. And then the situations where you do have it and you welcome it because there aren't that many people out there in the budget population that are equipped to handle it. And again, people that are, it just helps you stand out. And that's what makes you appear to be more senior. Oh, that's great. And so, well, I'd like to, you know, think about case interviews and generally like sort of the skills of, you know, consultants and those sort of built up at the world-class consulting firms. Would you say that, you know, the critical thinking and the communication skills are the primary things that are sort of trained, built up better there? Or are there any other competencies that leap to mind as well? The other aspect that came out of the study, and I've seen it a lot, I think is the idea of practical experience. The code for that, I think at most colleges, internships. Mm -hmm. So an internship is a microcosm. It's a summer, maybe it's a semester where you get practical experience, maybe just any experience, but sometimes very practical experience. And especially when we're hiring from undergraduate, it is so great to see a relevant internship or two, or sometimes even more, where you've seen that person at work, they're able to describe they did something, they worked with others, they created a report, they did a study, they created an output, they work with others. So I think practical experience, and that can be when People, I don't know, like myself might come in and help a college and provide, could be guest lecturers. Internships, obviously, are really good ones. I think that practical experience, and I also believe it's relevant once you're out of school. All of us, if we don't dramatically change our careers, I think we make lots of small degree course corrections over our uh, careers. In some cases, every year or two, you're learning a lot. Maybe you switch companies, maybe you switch areas in your company, or maybe it's a new set of skills because you got promoted. And I believe that you can immerse yourself into something new. Sometimes it might be in your own dime if your company's not paying for it. I know these code camps are popping up now. That's a good example of a very nano internship. I know when I wanted to do more with analytics on a small scale, I started with the belts, the green, the black, and then I got my master black belt with Lean Six Sigma. Again, by doing that, it really helped me go to a place where I wasn't before. So I think you can apply the concept of internships or practical experience in a way, or in your own careers, regardless of how many years out of school you are. The biggest fallacy is, well, my college days are done. Unless I go back and get that 
master's or my second master's or my executive MBA, then I can't afford that or I can't afford the time. I think that's a cop out. There are lots of small things we can do, especially in a world with Coursera's and Audacity's and similar tools. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. Well, so now I'd like to hear, you know, you mentioned doing some organization of logic associated with thinking about a situation, complication, key question, having a MECI set of issues that you're looking at, mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. I'd love to hear what are some other sort of quick wins or things the typical professional can do right now to look more like a genius, you know, sort of starting today by just thinking or communicating a bit differently? Well, the first thing I believe is decide what you're standing for. You know, what's your area of focus? If someone asks you what you do or your area, what is it? And then you could be in procurement. You could be, I'm in strategy. You could, whatever it is. And then identify the two or three leading thinkers on the topic. Make sure you've got books. I go for hardbacks, but you could go for the eBooks. Know the three or four colleges uh, or people that create the right kind of theoretical research on it, the conferences. In other words, actually understand what leading thinking is in the area that you say you work. It's amazing to me the number of people I come in contact with. They proudly say that they're a subject matter expert in a particular area. And then I ask them these questions. They get very quiet. In some cases, they really haven't gone outside of that one project or one stint they had at a particular area and said, well, I did this work, I'm an expert. The good news about today is you have so much information at your fingertips. Of course, the converse is everybody else does too. So at least take advantage of what's available and then ask some questions. And if you really want to go for the next level, call up some people or contact them, the people that write the articles or the people that are in some of these roles and reach out to them. It may take a few, but you start getting some feedback and ask people questions especially if they're a few years more senior than you and develop some mentoring relationships. It's amazing. Again, just like when I wanted to help the uh, university, there are a lot of good people out there that want to provide information, but they're not going to go seek you out. But if you're there at a time when it's convenient for them, you can get some really real good nuggets. And it doesn't take too many specific personal experiences, plus a critical mass number of vicarious ones, or maybe you read a case study and you related it back to become an authority in something. Again, don't skip steps, but you can take the white space out and get there much quicker. That's great. And so I'm thinking, I'd love to hear you hazard a guess in terms of, you know, what proportion of professionals do you think have read, say, the top four books (laughs) in their field of expertise? It's not a high number. I think that people, we respond. We respond to what's in our inbox. We respond to people, uh, I think many of us suffer, I certainly do, of trying to please people. So as things come in your inbox or people ask you, you try doing it. And I think proactively, it's good to step back periodically and say, do you have what you need? Are there some things that you should do proactively? Like, for example, you may have read the four books, but those four books six years ago might be different now. In fact, if you want to read a book about digital, maybe from 10 or 15 years ago, maybe it's different today, right? (laughs) And maybe productivity tips and all that. So on the other hand, you also can't just be addicted to whatever's coming on your newsfeed. And you can have information overload. So I think going on an information diet and just being selective. And I think that's what's nice is you can just prioritize. Prioritize your time, your personal time, your recharging time. 
the time in meetings and, and the things. And I think as long as you're comfortable as a professional with the fact that you are influencing your schedule, you're taking the time for the things you believe are most important, then hell with everything else. Because you can't read it all. Right. But it's important that you believe you had some influence and you're not just bobbing along the river, taking you down the stream of knowledge and information and you end up wherever you end up. Oh, I think that's great. So be proactive and take the time to become a real expert in your area, which may be easier than you think. And so what would be another top tip you'd put forth? Related to the first one, I think is just do less to do more. Do less, but be more. You know, get more from what you're doing. And as you develop more expertise, then nuance will emerge. And I think it will open up new avenues. I've certainly suffered from trying to you know, in consulting, you can serve many times to clients and you have lots of opportunities to pop up and not getting critical mass in an area. I remember one time many years ago, probably more than 10 years ago, where I thought it was so cool. I was leading five different projects mm-hmm. in three different industries in four different states and the technology underneath, I think there were four different types somehow. It was so cool. I could do that. Nobody else could. But during that period, I you know, didn't get critical mass and then and it's just wearing out. And then I said, you know what? I'm doing this one thing. It happened to be in an area called advanced planning and scheduling. It was kind of like the artificial intelligence of mid to late 90s. And did 35 projects in this one area. It got to be fun. You'd be able to walk in within an hour and create something that would normally take a long time and, and really be on top of something. Now, it's hard because that was a big enough market and things lent themselves you know, productively. But I've been on both sides of that, either extreme. And I think you need to hunt in an area or play in an area that is big enough that it's good to go deep. At the same time, you hedge your bets a little bit. You're always reading other things. But I think it is important to stand for something and make a bet. Worst case is you reconsider later. I think too often, what's that phrase, fear of missing out? You clutch too many things. And so it's a danger for all of us. You know, as information cost goes to zero, or at least for the mass-produced stuff, it's a danger. And how many subscriptions do you have? If people curate, obviously, that they value your podcast. If there's probably lots of them out there. There are lots of things to read. At some point, you could take over your entire schedule. So how do you manage and prioritize it? So again, going back to the idea of managing what you read, I think deciding what you're good at and focus on it, because then you'll really stand out for your niche. I think that's a big thing rather than trying to be a generalist like the next Oprah or the next Tom Peters, you know, a very broad, maybe business leader. Pick your area, you know, develop your tribe and maybe people can start to connect with you at your company, maybe at a business conference, your alumni organization or possibly even something broader externally. That's very helpful. And I'm curious to hear if you have some pro tips on saying no well in order to do that protecting of the time and your attention. So, you know, sometimes it's merely, you know, digital in your inbox or your newsfeed or whatnot. And other times it's flesh and blood, a person showing up asking you to help with this or that. How do you recommend making the determination and communicating the no? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not perfect at it. I, that's something I definitely have work to do there. I think the important thing if it's face-to-face is letting people know when you first talk with them. The people often call, hey, do you have a minute? Do you have a call? You know what? I've got three minutes before my next meeting. You, know, you give them a number. Mm-hmm. And most people will then calibrate what they want to discuss with you to the number you give them. Maybe your meeting's in 15 minutes, but you need some prep and so you give them five. Or whatever it is, I think framing the question or framing the period is really important because it's not their fault if they don't know what your schedule is or they don't know. 
they're just asking, would you help them? You say yes. And then all of a sudden your neck, if you can't manage your own time, I think that's important. And then beyond that is just replying no or tentative or all these meetings online. I think the other is try to start meetings and end meetings correctly. You can do a lot in the middle, but if you start and end them correctly, then you're off to a pretty good start. Can you end them a few minutes early? If you're walking from place to place, you just can't teleport. So that causes a whole ripple effect. I think those two things can go a long way. They're very, very obvious or very tactical, but they free you up to think otherwise and not just be running from place to place. Now, when you say start a meeting correctly and end a meeting correctly, could you Well, I mean, on, little, on time oh, on and time. just have an agenda. I mean, I think people can micromanage and squelch creativity and, and, and you know, the value of getting together in person by managing the whole thing. You know, you're trying to manage every minute throughout the process. I think agendas can slide around a little bit because you want to get the most of the people's time when they're together. I just meant if you start a project or a meeting well and you end it well, then you can afford some mistakes in the middle. I think that that's the other thing in this world of agile and and ambiguity that I believe your ability to micromanage every step of the way just because you can measure it, that ends up carrying so much overhead and squelches the creativity that I think it's a real uh, danger the fact that we can do that because of all of our tools that we try to do it. Mm-hmm. That's why I think the minimum number of control points, maybe the start of a meeting, maybe the middle to take a temperature check, and then at the end to make sure what are the actions, who's doing it. Hopefully it's a few minutes before, especially in conference calls, because you know people aren't together and you can't see the body language and you don't know how much multitasking is going on. So I think the minimum number of control points in a discussion and then letting the free flow otherwise gets the best of both worlds. Okay, thank you. Well, now I'd like to shift gears for a bit. And here, you know, you are in an interesting spot there at Infosys, taking a look at technological advances and how that's getting implemented in reshaping industries and stuff. So I'd love to hear if you have any commentary on what trends do you think are actually likely to show up in a way that we can sort of look, see and feel in workplaces you know, within the next decade? First is a general statement. Peter Diamandis talks a lot about this, and so I'll definitely give credit where credit's due, that linear versus nonlinear thinking. Human beings are wired throughout our history to think in a linear way. You want more, you run faster, or maybe mechanically your engine takes you a little faster. You ride or you fly a little faster. We just aren't wired to think in nonlinear terms, like geometric progression. And so what's interesting is, During the early days of exponential growth, it actually appears to be less than linear growth. And so you don't notice it. And by the time someone notices, it may be too late because at that point, it's hit that inflection point. It could be in pandemics. It could be in growth of of types of algae. But also can be in trends, digital trends, you know, competitors. You know, Kodak certainly fell in that category with and Xerox and others with their competitors. And I believe that that's something that we have to caution against is looking backward or trying to apply linear trends to many things that are going on, trying to see which ones might be nonlinear, which ones might adopt faster, especially given the um, several disruptors that are happening simultaneously, very low cost to sensors, cloud computing being very inexpensive, a lot of disruption uh, demonetization where things we expect now to be free. So everything that we like about those low cost free consumer items, there's some company going under because of it, right? Right. So I think it's a macro statement. 
understanding nonlinear thinking or nonlinear activities when they exist. And if you're in an industry, what should you be doing now so that when you do actually see it in action, you're not left out? I think it's really important. Look what's happening with retail. You know, Walmart's struggling. Everybody was saying how Walmart would be the killer. What was Walmart doing to them? They worry a lot about Amazon now, right? And so it's interesting how the nature of competition changes. The other trend I think that's interesting is, you know, right now people worry about jobs and of course jobs coming back to the U.S., for example, right now. And it's not just about the cost of wages. The fact is there's a lot of productivity because automation is doing so much. So you can't look backward to forecast the future. I think that's an important aspect as well. And also being very hopeful that the automation, artificial intelligence, they're going to free up so much productivity that new jobs, new types of activities will become feasible that weren't before. So what might they be? I work a lot with connected devices, smart connected immersive devices, including connected vehicles. And it's happening faster than people imagine. Now, some of it might not be allowed to happen as far as on a mass scale because of policy or regulatory issues, but the technology, it's fascinating how fast it's moving. So I think the non-linearity of these trends happening faster is the biggest thing. And then, of course, I think genetics, although not as close to that industry, there have been some recent studies that have been published where the National Association of Sciences has approved some level of genetic modification, I think a mitochondrial insertion or some fancy term, where they're giving blessings, especially in very early embryo state, especially if they're known birth defects and things like that. So there's some official approvals of those things happening now. And if you think that there was debate about genetically modified plants, <laughs> where do you see GM humans, right? Right. So I think in the genetic aspect, we'll no longer be separate from computing or from the mechanical because there will be computers at that molecular level, for example, that'll be doing things in our bodies, you know, monitoring, provide dispensing medications, providing feedback. So uh, the lines will continue to blur. And so what does that mean for businesses, especially once the decisions are being made through machines that are learning? I think that's good for us over, over beers periodically to think about how it will affect us. And but I also think we shouldn't get too upset about it. First of all, you live your life in the here and now, you know, day to day, you just look around the corner and make sure you're planning as well for the different options. And also the best defense is being the best at what you're doing. The top several percentage points of any industry will always do well. I do think there is a divide, you know, bifurcation people talk about, that that's the real issue. I think a lot of the listeners for your podcast are going to fall on one side of that divide. But I do think what are the implications of that broad divide and are there any opportunities for people to help others as well? So those are all things I think about. Oh, interesting stuff. Well, Jeff, tell me, is there anything else you want to cover off before we shift gears and hear about your favorite things? No, I think you covered it. Okay, well, let's do it. So can you share with us a favorite quote? Well, one of my favorite quotes is from, not necessarily a humorous one, but it's a like, really witty, from Peter Drucker, who said, the best gift you could have is intellectual integrity, not seeing things as you hope they are or fear they are, but as they really are, because that can cut through a lot of biases. So I've, that one has stayed with me a lot. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Well, I'm a tennis fanatic, so I love things to do with tennis. And there have been some studies. In fact, we actually work with the ATP, the men's tour. And when you look at some of the statistics around tennis, I mean, things like revolutions per minute, you know, the, 
Rafael Nadal having 3,600 RPM on a forehand and many of the pros having well over 2,500. Applying some of those statistics to um, sports that we play is just fascinating. And also just starting to apply those statistics to strategy. Like, for example, 93 93% of every pro point is four shots or less. So all those rallies people do in practice are just not very helpful. Craig O'Shaughnessy is one of the um, top tennis strategists. A friend of mine, he writes a lot on that topic as well. So you mentioned studies. Those are some of the ones I found most interesting recently. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, I really like the book Contact by Carl Sagan. The movie was good. The book was really good. So it's a, good about the future and different options. As far as a business book, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information uh, by Edward Tufte. And I've got all of his books. I've seen them twice, 20 years ago and then a couple months ago. And it's the real stuff. It's all gold. So uh, good stuff. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's hardware, software, product, service, app? Mm. Well, I grew up on a farm, so I like farm tools because you can, <laughs> and truly, bailing wire and duct tape, we have repaired almost anything with that. So uh, <laughs> I'll stick with the farm on that. Yeah, hardware and software is all great stuff. But I think the ability to do things physically, to get out, remember a machete I bought for my father, it thing could cut through all kinds of brush. And uh, nothing quite like doing something physical and then seeing a result when you're done. So I'll stick with the physical on that. Oh, that's good. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's effective? Well, there was a guy, I think he's a doctor, Dr. Malcolm Malm. Growing up, you know, everyone gets stressed playing sports in high school. And I did as well. And, you know, I'm not doing as well as I could. And I got this book called Psycho-Cybernetics. And mm-hmm. it was just, I think it was like meditation basically, but, you know, as a kid. And basically just breathing you know, visualizing your breath, slowing things down. Just, I think we actually call it meditation today, but it was amazing how it just helped me get out of my own way and get much better at getting things done in in basketball and baseball, which a couple of sports plus tennis I was playing. And it just amazed me what an impact it made in a very short period of time. So I think that habit of just breathing and (laughs) let's face it, we all get stressed out, right? So, uh, I think breathing and letting things go a little bit and knowing that whatever somebody is saying or that airline that's late or whatever's going on, you can choose how you respond. So I would say that habit is just breathing, letting it go and hopefully living to find another day. Mm. Okay, thank you. And is there a particular nugget that you share, a Jeff original quote that really seems to connect and resonate with folks in terms of they're taking notes, they're not in their head, they're retweeting? Well, I don't know if it's all that brilliant or not, but mm-hmm. I use it a lot. Whenever somebody says we're behind on something and, well, we should have done this before and why are we even bothering with it now? I say, you know, the best time to plant a tree was many years ago, but the second best time is today. So let's get going and that way it will be there for us. All right. And how about your ideal contact information? If folks want to learn more about what you're up to or get in touch, what should they do? You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Cav, J-E-F-F-K-A-V, or on the site, jeffcavanaugh.net, J-E-F-F-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H.net. And I'm just putting a lot of this content out there. It's not a large site. It's just a lot of the things we talked about. And then in emphasis.com, in the consulting area, we're doing some pretty interesting things in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And our foundation, I'm also very proud of. We have renovated 60,000 libraries. We feed a million hot meals a day to kids in India. A lot of job retraining in the U.S., Probably about Obama administration, we did that in the White House. We had the Makers Awards where we're rewarding and helping people with actually making things. 
and helping that area. A lot of girls who code and Hispanic Heritage Foundation. So we do a lot in our foundation. So you can also look up the Emphasis Foundation. We're pretty proud of that work too. Oh, excellent. And would you offer a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yes. Take five minutes tonight, search on Google for the things that you care about the most in your work and record the things that pop up and buy a book, read an article, identify a conference, and then see how that content, once you read it, you can apply to your own work and then see how you feel about becoming just a little bit better at what you do. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Well, Jeff, this has been a real treat. I wish you lots of luck with the website and the forthcoming book and Infosys and all you're up to. Glad to. Thanks for having me on and all the best. I love that distinction with done, done. And I think sometimes it's easy to almost assume, it's like, well, I don't know exactly what they want and who can read their mind. And so they're going to do some changes anyway. I can't really expect to deliver it exactly the way they want with some sort of magical psychic powers. But I really think that's the game in terms of discovering, well, what is it exactly? The distinctions, the nuances between what I'm delivering and what the CEO or the board of directors or your manager, whatever level you sit at, is really looking for. And so you can get to the bottom of that progressively and observe the changes and follow up and chat so that you're just nailing it progressively better and better each time. So I know that was a big learning for me in my career and it was great to hear Jeff bring that back up to the forefront. So that's cool. Anyway, if you want to review that or other great points, you can check the goods out over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep128. And I do recommend you punch the subscribe button if you haven't already. So you will hear from our next guest. It's Ben Bratt. He's got some insights into the elements that make teams win versus lose. So I hope to catch you then. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.